Second Peter and chapter one. We have been together learning the Apostle Peter's thoughts behind this letter and his desire for the saints that you are running for their lives on the account of Christ and his testimony. We are learning together with regards how there is a need to not only have the qualitable character of godliness, but there's also a need to maintain our standing as people of God. And as we've been learning together, we've seen that there's not only these imperatives to be godly, but we looked at those statements of facts that demand out of us to be godly, even how to be godly. Now, we have been learning together concerning the impact of godliness. To what extent should godliness affect our lives? That's what we we have been learning together. We looked at the distinguishing features concerning this godliness. And at the bottom of it all, we spend some time to learn that there is the foundation reality of faith. That faith is foundation on which righteousness and godliness are founded. And that faith comes as a result of Christ himself saving us and making us his own. And by virtue of us becoming his own, he has made us godly, or he has made us holy and righteous. So we looked at the distinguishing features. I want us today to look at godliness and how it influences reverent worship. Reverent worship. The Apostle Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, and I'll read from verse 4, but I'll end my reading in verse 6. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge is self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. Godliness. When we began, we defined godliness as a proper response to the things of God which produces in us obedience and righteous living. This is a communicable attribute, the very attribute of God which he has shared with those he has made righteous on the account of Christ. 
Now, this godliness has within it the concept of deeper, thoughtful, reflective awe upon an individual who is godly. The one who is godly has to have deeper thoughts, should be very thoughtful, should be reflective on the awesomeness of God. Because we are made to be godly. Which leads to having this response that is in accord with the very nature of God. Which causes us ultimately to be a people that are devoted to God. Godliness. Godliness affects our thoughts, affects our hearts, affects how we live and how we relate with things round about us. Godliness in the original term, has, it's a compound word, eusebia. The EU from that word means well. But the end part of it, the root of that word is Sebomai. I'm sorry for using those terms behind the pulpit, but I hope you appreciate the reason. It is the term that refers to reverence. So, godliness, when you put this compound word together, is well ordered reverence. Well ordered reverence. This is a disposition of the heart which affects how we approach the revered Most High God with that reverent order in our hearts when we go before him. That's to say, brethren, when we go before God Most High, we should not regard him like he's just our buddy. He is not our friend. Yes, from his vantage point, to affirm how much he has accepted us, he regards us as his friend. But we are reverent toward him. I don't think among us there is anyone who's gone to his father, hey buddy, how are you doing today? You can't do that. That is dad. We respect him. The same way we ought to be respectful when we go to God. Because at the back of our minds, we have the reality of what true religion is. And who's at the center of this religion? That is God most high. He's the majestic king of kings and lord of lords. So we go to worship him. With our lives invested in that worship. We honor and we bring the gifts that are befitting to God Most High. I want to emphasize on that. Bringing the gifts that are befitting. There's that hymn we sing, Take my life and let it be consecrated whole to thee. That's absolute devotion. From what we think about, from what we say, from how we conduct ourselves, everything about us should be befitting 
Now, the standard with regards to what is befitting, it's not us. It's God. So that begs the question, when we come with this garb of godliness upon us, are we rendering befitting worship to this God? Are we rendering befitting praise to this God? Even in the midst of persecution, are we able to render to him befitting honor to this God? Godness, brethren, is not something we put on and we take off. It affects every aspect of our worship. Godness is not a suggestion given to us, brethren. It is a command by which we ought to live. Someone said this concerning godliness. Godliness is a right attitude and response toward the true creator God. A preoccupation from the heart with holy and sacred realities. It is respect for what is due to God and is thus the highest of all virtues. The highest of all virtues. Now concerning this godliness, which should mark our worship when we approach God Most High. There is a demand for solemn submission from us as we approach God. There should be the lowering of ourselves because we are going before the highly exalted one. It is as it were John the Baptist, when he heard the words from his disciples, that someone is baptizing and the whole world is going to him. What was his immediate response? He must be exalted and I must decrease. And that, 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 that should always be our, our disposition. We submit to him with everything in us. At times, the Lord God would demand something of us that would conflict with our well-ordered lives. But no matter how good that might be, the goodness of God supersedes whatever it is that is good to us. For instance, he has demanded out of us to keep the Sabbath day holy. Should we start arguing what that means? We begin to, to question or even try to come up with options to make it more palatable to us. But we pause and ask what is more befitting to God? What is more befitting to God? Reverence, awe, and worship should affect every aspect of our lives. The idea of reverence for God is not the idea born out of man. Reverence that God demands out of us begins with God himself. When he talks about the Sabbath, that's not the only thing that he speaks about. When you go back in the Old Testament, 
you'd find the Lord God demanded so much of purity out of a people that approached him. And he says, I am holy. I am holy. Only God is permitted to say that. I am holy. And those that approach me should be holy. I can't say that. Neither can you, brethren. Only God is able to do that. Now, throughout the history of humanity, within us there is that urge to serve and worship something greater than we are. But with us that have come to know the Lord, and by his mercy, he's made us pure, he's made us holy, he is causing us to worship the right object. And this is God, the most holy one. So the manner in which we approach him matters greatly. The Lord God by design, when you look at the way he, he aged, I mean, urged the people of old, the manner in which they did to approach him, talk about the Ark of the Covenant, talk about the Holy of Holies. No man was permitted to go in there. That was God's entire idea. And he appointed a man who should enter the Holy of Holies. How often? Once per year. Once per year. The idea is entirely God's. And we are taught from scriptures, whoever disobeyed to live by and honor the word of God, to be holy and approach God in a holy manner, there are consequences that came there. Leviticus 22 and verse 9. The Lord said, They shall therefore keep my charge, that they will not bear a sin because of it, and die thereby, because they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies. I am the Lord. He's speaking concerning those that ministered before him. In Numbers chapter 4, Verse 20. First Chronicles chapter 13. If that, there's an interesting story there. I'm sure many of us know the story of the man. It depends on how you pronounce it. I say Uza. Others say Aza. So I don't know which camp you are. <laughs> the Aza. All right. There's an interesting story. You don't remember the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. And at some point, David had the Ark of the Covenant be transported. Along the way, the scriptures, that's from 1 Chronicles 13, 9 through 10. Uzzah reaches out his hand and touches the Ark. And with immediate effect, he got struck down, he died. Now, the question is, did Uzzah reach out irreverently? Or was he concerned because he saw the oxen hit the rock and the ark was about to fall off 
the oxen is cut. And it reaches out. But Uzzah got struck and he died immediately. Which brought fear, obviously, to David. And this act did not come into Jerusalem. But here's the story, uh, the reason, brethren. The intention with regards Uzzah's reaching out was good. But that was not in order with what God had put down. Only the priests were allowed. He was not a priest. He reaches out and he touches the ark and he died. And he died. Do you remember the scenes and the deaths of Nadab and Abihu? Numbers, rather Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22 through chapter 10. And up to verse 3. This is the story. I, I think I'll, I'll just read it in our hearing. If we're able to turn there, we may. As you find your way. We, we have a scenario here, brethren. Now, Nadab and Abihu, we may say we, we, we have an excuse for them to do what they did. Because Uzzah, on one hand, was not a priest. But Nadab and Abihu, they were sons of Aaron, priests. Why would the Lord strike them? And they died right in the presence of the Lord. Nadab and Abihu wanted to usurp the glory of God. They wanted to be at the center or the center of attention and not God. Listen to this. Chapter 9 and verse 22. Now Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering. And the burnt offering and the peace offering. Moses and Aaron went into the tent, uh, the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Worship. Worship. In the midst of that, chapter 10, verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took the respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fires before the Lord. When he had not commanded them, and that is the key word. Offered strange fire, God did not require of them to do what they did. Verse, verse 2. And the fire out from the presence of the Lord had consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord Spoke saying, 
by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So by implication, the Lord is saying, I was not honored before my people. These men did not come before me with that holy awe as the Lord God of heaven. He says, I should be honored. But look at the closing statement in verse 3. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Brethren, what we have here is that our godliness should influence the way we approach the Lord. The way we regard God. If indeed we know that we have that which is of God and from God upon us, we need to inquire even more to know how do we approach this holy God? How do we worship this holy God? How do we minister before this gracious God? Not in our own way or as we deem fit. Reverent worship is what we ought to offer. Maybe one of us might be asking, why would the Lord have such a strict you know, uh, rules? The Lord is jealous of his holiness. He is jealous of his glory. He does not want anyone to trifle with his righteousness. And if we have received the holiness of God, think about Nadab and Abihu. Those were appointed priests. They were holy men. But the Lord disciplined them by causing death to come upon them. I think we need to reach a point as believers where we realize that our holiness is not meant for us to impress mankind. But the holiness given to us, this godliness we have, it's to cause us to stand accepted before God without having him striking us because we are so unholy. It is a great blessing. It's a great blessing. A lot, a lot can be said uh, about that. Let, let me talk about where this reverent worship should come from. Because if this reverent worship is motivated by the holiness of God or the godliness, the ease from God and to us, this reverent worship should originate from the true knowledge and nowhere else. From the true knowledge of God. Look at, uh, we can go back to Second Peter and just look at some few verses where the emphasis is given, not many verses, concerning knowledge. And I think we took time to, to look at this. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God. 
and of Jesus our Lord. If you skip, you come down to verse 5. In verse 5, we have after moral excellence, there is knowledge. Look at verse 8. He says, and if these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our understanding of who God is or who Jesus is should not only inform us concerning our godliness or our righteousness, but should also inform us concerning our reverent worship of this great God. The truth of God shapes our thinking around God. I wonder if last time I did mention this. But any and awesome thought about God, that is idolatry. Any. So how do we have and maintain the healthy thoughts about God. It's only when we have the true knowledge of God. The scriptures are residing inside of our hearts. I think Paul made mention of this in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of God will richly in your heart. If the word is dwelling in us. We'll have a good understanding of what this righteousness and godliness is. If we have to have the right attitude, the right conduct, the right character toward God, it is all based upon the truth of God and nothing else. Nothing else. Someone said godliness is as a denoting character and conduct that is solely determined by the principle of love or fear of God in the heart. And he says is the summing up of genuine religion. There can be no true religion without it, but only the dead religion, godliness. J.I. Parker says godliness to the Puritans was essentially a matter of conscience inasmuch as it consistent in a hearty, disciplined, considerate, thoughtful response to non-evangelical truth and centered upon the getting and the keeping of a good conscience. Godliness. So this should influence our reverent worship. But let's look at second, uh, thirdly. Not only is this godliness considered under the distinguishing features, as we did, now the influence to reverent worship, but thirdly, godliness assures believers of their vital union with Christ. It assures or ensures believers of their very vital union with Christ. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in John uh, 6 and John 10? 
All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and all who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. If you have never thought of the assurance of salvation, those words should take a hold of our hearts and realize that the one who is saying these words is a faithful one. He never goes back on his word. So if we have received godliness or righteousness or holiness from him, it also informs or rather causes us to realize how united we are to Christ. There is a number of verses which I will share with us. But I will make mention of the grounds or the examples under which believers are united to Christ. We'll stay in Ephesians, if you will. Just Ephesians, and we'll start with Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians uh, chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, for the most part, has really done a faithful work under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to inform us concerning our union with Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 10. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. If you would, skip down to verse 6. Yes, verse 6. Verse 5, he says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now look at verse 6. And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ. In Christ. So, we are not only created in Christ, but we are raised up with Christ. We are reigning with Christ. Yes, we are here on earth, but we are reigning with Christ. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, he said, We have been, rather, I have been crucified with Christ. You, are basically, you and I are basically dead to sin. Buried with Christ. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12. Baptized into Christ and into his death. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. We are united in his resurrection. We have been raised up with him. Romans 6 and verse 5. I've already made mention of this. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6. Christ is formed in every single believer. And that is found in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9. Christ is dwelling in our hearts. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 17. 
The church is the body of Christ. So where the church is? They is the bride of Christ. United to Christ. Christ is in us. Scripture says. Taste yourselves to see if you are in faith. Examine yourself all. Do you not recognize this about yourself? Paul says that Christ is in you. Christ is in you. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. That's to say we are in him and he is in us. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians and chapter 5. Reading from verse 31 and down to verse 33, uh, 32. He says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Of 32. This mystery is great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now we know the preceding verses. The union there is between the husband and wife. And how the husband has to love the wife just as Christ loved the church. And how the church... Submits to Christ. That's the way the wife ought to submit to the husband. And then he closes off with making a reference. That is speaking about this mystery. Concerning the church. That level of union. Let me just indulge us. Look at verse 25. Ephesians 5. Husband. Husbands, rather love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Now look at what Jesus did for the church. He gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Verse 30. Because we are members of his body. United to Christ. None of us brethren can stand and say. If you have believed in Christ and he has saved you. That Christ has withheld some of his righteousness. Some of his holiness from you. If he is in you. You are in him. His righteousness is reigning in your soul, and so does he in my soul. 
Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Believers, their desire is to be found in him. Their further proofs, uh, proof that affirm how united we are. We are justified, we are glorified, we are sanctified, we are called, we are made alive, we are created anew, we are adopted, we are elected. All these affirm that we are in Christ. We are in Christ. Our union with Christ is so real, so intense, and so intimate. This example the Apostle Paul gives here that husband should love the wife, the wife should submit to the husband. This has a time frame to it. When a husband, by the grace of God, is called home, or the wife is called home, these seizes. But with Christ, they go beyond time. They go beyond time. Our union with him, we should promote and encourage this godliness in us. It's something every believer has to cherish in their soul. I can only imagine how if, I mean, when the believers that Peter is writing to were thinking in these ways, I don't think they, many of those that were mature enough in Christ ever at some point fear death. Because if they knew that they are united to Christ, if they knew that the reason for their persecution is the testimony of Christ, the holiness of Christ in them, and how different they were living as opposed to how the world lived. Every day they live. You are probably looking at it like, this might be my day. This might be my day. But never once, I should submit, did they wonder if ever they were holy or not. Which should be a reality to us, brethren. The godliness in us is real. Because it affirms how united we are to God. But let's look at the fourth the fourth idea. This won't take as much of our time. Peter says to your perseverance, godliness. Godliness as a divinely infused awareness of God must permeate every aspect of life. We did not cause us to be holy. God did. And that should affect every area of our lives. The Apostle Paul had spoken something in reference to that in second, rather, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 down to 13. Paul is basically saying that in view of this internal spiritual quality of true godliness, Timothy was to follow 
after righteousness, after godliness, after faith, after love, after patience, after meekness. How was he to live that way in his day in, day out? Maybe we, we need to read that because the Apostle Paul uses some of the language there which seem to be very, very interesting. First Timothy chapter 6. Reading from verse 11. He says, but you, O man of God, free, rather flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But see, he says, flee, flee. Now, the fleeing is like that picture of Joseph in the presence of Potiphar's wife. As a young man, he had the great opportunity to sin and be greatly favored in every way possible. But he said, I cannot do such a thing. I can't sin against my master, nor can I sin against my God. He fled. The Apostle Paul is urging Timothy to maintain his, his conduct and his, his, his character Because the Apostle Paul is giving an example of others that were shipwrecked because they did not maintain or hold on to the godliness which, with which the Lord Jesus Christ had saved them. In other words, what we are told here is we need to structure our lives around those things that promote godliness. It also means we need to be very sensitive and conscious of those things that can be subtle and cause us to not live godly lives. We need to seek God to help us that every aspect of our lives there is no lack of godliness. Even in the motive, the decisions we make, in our parenting, in the choices we make, various things in our lives, the base of it all should be godliness. Will it serve the purposes of God or not? But let me hurry on and just give us the very last idea 
godliness guards against all manner of counterfeits. You know, people are so prone to embrace an element that look like Christian when it is in reality not Christian. And before we are all put in one crop and be considered as Christians, there should be certain distinguishing elements. Godliness. We live in the midst of corrupt men with corrupt minds. According to Apostle Paul says, they are destitute of the truth. And they suppose that godliness is the means of gain. Those are people with whom we rub shoulders. They think when they say the amens, when they carry the Bible, that that's being godly. When they walk a certain way, that's being godly. But godliness is deeper than that. We have taken, I don't know how long, just talking about godliness. And what God expects of the ones he has made godly. It affects every part of us, as we've seen in the prior idea. First Timothy 4, verse 7 through 8. This is a call to self-discipline. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, But refuse profane and old wives' feebles, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profit little. But godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that is now and that which is to come. There should be a habit developed around our maintenance of our godly lives. The apostle Paul says we ought to wake out this our salvation with fear and trembling. As we become sensitive brethren to things that might mirror our image. Things that might cause our minds to become to a greater extent corrupt. Or even cause us to be ashamed. To even call upon the name of the Lord. Those things we need to be sensitive to them. Because many people who claim to be Christians, they live a certain way of life. And another kind of life. It's like when a Monday comes, they want to live like the evil one. But when the Lord's day comes, they are holy. And as soon as we pray the closing prayer, or they pray in their church, the closing prayer, they walk through the door, they pick up their old lifestyle. But a godly man, 
has a consistent lifestyle that honors God. These habits are developed. This consistent godly man pursues this holiness, this, this godliness. He does not relent like we looked at those words, flee. Fleeing in the original, grammar-wise, it's the present imperative. It is flee and continue on fleeing. Again, to pursue godliness is pursue now and continue on pursuing. Non-stop. Non-stop. This is a righteous life, brethren. This is how God expects of his people to be. We desire godliness. We desire to live a, a life that honors God in every aspect of our lives and our involvement in this day and age. In every aspect of our engagements, godliness has to be seen. We press on hard and remain earnest and diligent in our maintenance of this godliness, relying on the ability that the Spirit of God provides. So I'll close with this. Godliness in the first place, desires to be rightly related both to God and to man. That's godliness. Godliness in the second place embodies reverence toward God. Thirdly, godliness is that inner attitude that is that always cleans onto desiring to please God. John Piper said this in this regard. Godliness means a love for the things of God and a walk in the ways of God. A love for the things of God and a walk in the ways of God. And uh Lastly, godliness to a believer is life. That is your life. That is my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And the good Lord had a blessing the preaching of his word. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you that you have enabled us to navigate around this concept of godliness which, Lord, we have but scratched the surface because this there is more deeper truths to this reality. But thank you, Lord, for the sufficient information of given to us to live by. We thank you for making us godly. Thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this union we have with him. Thank you that this godliness affects even the manner in which we approach you in 
worship. The way we live our lives. Father, we pray that you would help us in areas that we have failed or find ourselves failing. That you would help us, our Father, to always rely on your strength. The strength given to us by the Spirit of God. Help us, Lord, to serve you and live for you in the manner that is befitting your character and in the manner that is befitting to those that you have made holy. Keep us holy, Father. We do pray that in your mercy you'd cause us to be a sensitive people, a people that is discerning at all times, a people that are able to know and judge the times in which we live through the eyes of faith. And as the King, Jesus reigns, who will one day come and take his bride home, Lord, we desire on that day to not be ashamed because you have made us holy through your Son. May you receive all the glory and the praise due to your name. First Timothy 1.17 Paul says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.